Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our series titled Presence. Throughout this series, we are learning to become aware of the divine in our midst. Today, Pastor Jason Coker shares a teaching from Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, titled Celebration. All right, let's jump into our teaching for today. We are almost done with our uh, presence series of teachings. So today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the role of celebration in experiencing the presence of God. Our approach to this series has been that we believe as Christians that God is present in our world, in our lives, in our work, in our play, in our thinking, in our acting, In every manner of doing in our lives, God is there, but we are not always aware of God's presence. So really, the premise of this whole series has been, how do we learn to cultivate an awareness that God is always here with us at all times, and that by becoming aware of God's presence, we're able to cooperate with the good things that God is doing, that God leads us in that way. So today, we're going to talk about celebration, which is sort of the flip side of what I talked about last week, which was lament. We talked about the importance of acknowledging that all is not right with the world, and that part of entering into the presence of God is the willingness at times to stand, maybe even shake a fist at God and say, this isn't right, this isn't what you promised, this isn't what I signed up for, so what are you going to do about it, God? And that's uncomfortable for folks. Um, Sometimes I think, however, that celebration is in some ways even more uncomfortable for folks, even though it's sort of obviously a good thing. So we're going to talk about that today. And if you would, I would appreciate if we could start with a word of prayer. So loving God, we come before you this morning uh, in this time that we have carved out in this space that we've set aside for our gathering. Uh, We pray that you would Make a sense of your presence known to us, not only in our singing and in our prayers, uh, not just in our greeting or our fellowship, but also in our reading and reflecting and thinking upon the words of Scripture uh, that sometimes are difficult for us to understand. Sometimes the words in these pages are difficult for us to bear but we believe that as we dig into these passages that you will make yourself known to us in some way. And so today I pray that that would be true this day as well. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, I know. I tell a lot of stories, right? And I often tell stories that are very unflattering to myself. So just heads up, I'm about to tell one of those stories. Also... I'm about to talk about things that maybe some folks aren't accustomed to us talking about in church. Specifically, I'm going to talk about me being intoxicated. So if that is offensive to you, that's okay. I'm not upset that that's offensive to you. If, if what I'm about to talk about is triggering to you, I will not be offended if you get up and leave. Even if you get up and leave in such a way that it's clear that you're offended, that's okay. That's fine. Um, But I also want you to know that what I'm about to say is not in any way meant to be a glorification of me as a person who happens to be intoxicated in this story. In fact, it should become abundantly clear to you that I was an idiot. 
So that's my intention, is to convey to you what an idiot I was when I was a 17-year-old junior in high school. Here's how the story goes. Worst party of my life ever. 17 years old, junior in high school. Friday night, went to a party, somebody's house. I don't know whose house it was. I went with some friends, walked in the door, and it was like a scene out of a John Hughes movie. If you are from the 80s, you know who John Hughes was, Pretty in Pink, right? 16 Candles, that's John Hughes. This was just like a scene out of John Hughes. A middle-class home in a middle-class neighborhood packed to the gills with underage teenagers acting like fools. And as I walked through the door, I thought, this is the place for me. And so I walked in and proceeded to immediately partake of as much beer as would possibly come out of the keg. Now, from that point forward, I don't remember much, just to be honest. The, the party comes to me in like flashes of scenes. So for example, the next thing that I remember is being out by the pool, there was a pool in the backyard, of being, being out by the pool and noticing that there were about four rather well-known football players from my high school campus who happened to be conveniently perched at the very edge of the pool with their backs conveniently towards me. Now, I don't know what they were talking about. I'm sure that they were really busy being hyper cool because they were football players. And because I'd had a few beers by that time, I thought, why not? And so I literally rushed at them and put my arms out as wide as I could. Now, I know this is hard to imagine, but I was actually south of 150 pounds at that point. So it's a miracle that I was able to do this. But in one swoop, I pushed all four football players into the pool. They went into the pool, it was epic. Again, think John Hughes film. It was a really a proud moment, I have to admit. And then follow that up by me being, they got out of the pool, by the way, not in very good moods, right? They got out of the pool, came after me, chased me down, dragged me back to the pool. I think I went in the pool, but I really don't remember. <laughs> Scene one. Scene two, I remember being half asleep on the kitchen table and somebody coming up, grabbing the back of my head, lifting my head up and looking at me to see who that idiot was who was passed out on the kitchen table and then laughing at me and putting my head back down. Scene number three, I don't know how much longer this was, but I was in the front yard, miraculously, leaning over into the shrubbery, evacuating the contents of my stomach into the shrubbery. After that, I have no idea what happened, but I can tell you that I was a very popular person on campus the next Monday. I proceeded to hear a lot of stories about myself. Now, this was simultaneously like demeaning and embarrassing and shameful, like all of that somehow at the same time. And yet, like any idiotic 17-year-old who goes to a party and drinks too much, I decided to wear it like a badge of honor. Here's what I learned from that experience. And this is half of the moral of my story today. What I learned from that experience was that when you party, when you celebrate for no reason other than to escape from life, that that experience is empty. That it doesn't really have any meaning other than to escape. And that when you do that in a meaningless way, it can become very quickly a destructive 
Now, I've noticed as I look back in my life that when I have celebrated or partied or pushed things too far for no reason other than to escape the difficulties of my life, that it has a tendency to veer into the realm of destruction very quickly, either self-destructive or destructive of other people or maybe destructive of property. That's a big part of my adolescence, to be honest with you. I wasn't the worst kid in the world, but I definitely was not the best. Today, I want to suggest to you that Revelation 19 becomes a kind of... Uh, a kind of peg upon which we can hang our understanding of what genuine, fulfilling, meaningful celebration can look like. And interestingly enough, it's the story of a wedding. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To her, it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, what we have here, of course, is the apocalypse of John. It's this literature that we have at the end of our Bible. We don't really know what to do with this literature other than turn it into fanciful works of fiction and sell hundreds of thousands of copies. Otherwise, this book can be difficult for us to approach. What's happening here, I want to suggest to you that what's happening in the letter, the revelation of John, is that John is trying to communicate something to us about the nature of what God promises to all of us as people who are intentionally pursuing God in our lives. Let me say that again. John is trying to, through this letter, communicate what is possible to those of us who have intentionally pursued God in our lives. Now, part of what John is doing in this particular passage is he's painting a really powerful picture about what is possible in God in the future, and he uses a very particular image to convey what he believes to be true. The image in this case is, now, I know it's hard to see in this passage, but the image is of a wild party. That really is what's being communicated in this chapter. Because this is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And a wedding, for those folks who lived during that time, had a very particular look, a very particular feel, had very particular practices. We see it a little bit in Jesus' day with the marriage at Cana, where Jesus performs his first miracle. The marriage of Cana is what an ancient Near Eastern wedding, especially a Jewish wedding, would have looked like. The way that that wedding works is something like this. The bridegroom and all of his buddies... They come to the bride's home in the middle of the night, knock on the door. This is not a surprise, by the way. She's expecting this. This is how weddings work, right? They come, knock on her door in the middle of the night with torches. She comes out with all of her attendants. And so then the bride and the, the bridegroom and all of their attendants and their family and their friends and their neighbor begin to make a procession through the streets of the city at night under torchlight as if to say to the entire city, something as ama amazing is about to happen. There's going to be a wedding. That's the beginning of the party. Imagine if your party started at midnight with a torch-lit procession through the city. And then it ended at the destination where there was essentially a feast that lasted for several days up to a week long. Now, food is my love language, so the idea of eating for seven days straight sounds like a lot of fun to me. I'm not going to lie. 
But that's essentially what a wedding party looked like in Jesus' day. It was a party that started with a lot of fanfare, a lot of excitement, a lot of celebration that really included the whole town, and then lasted for several days. So John has taken that image and used it to convey to us that there is some future promise that is captured by this idea that the person who's getting married is God. God is seeking to be wedded to God's own people. And that wedding, that sort of joining together, that intimate covenant between God and God's people takes on the form in Revelation 19 of this massive party that lasts for several days. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now, Scripture is full of these uh, depictions of celebrations. In fact, celebration, long parties, lots of food, lots of wine, lots of people enjoying themselves is literally a practice that's baked in, pun intended, baked in to ancient Judaism. Judaism as a, a kind of religious tradition is built around this idea of feasts and festivals. In other words, parties. These parties happen all the time. It's not just weddings, like the wedding at Cana. It's also uh, times like Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. The Jewish New Year becomes a symbolic feast where the Jewish people are acting out the fulfillment of the promises of God before they're really fulfilled. Also, Feast of Booths is another one of these parties where the people of God are getting together. They're acting out the fulfillment of God's promises before they are completely fulfilled. Even Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement in the Jewish tradition, although that's a very somber practice, it is essentially a time of repentance for them. Even Yom Kippur ends with feasting, ends with celebration, because they are celebrating, they are partying the fact the belief, the faith, the trust in the possibility that God's forgiveness is true for them. They are literally celebrating the fulfillment of a future that hasn't quite been completed yet. All of these are scriptural examples of God saying, hey, there are times in your life when the most appropriate thing to do is throw a party. There are times when the most appropriate thing for you to do is throw a party. And so, as Christians, we ought to be looking for that same sort of practice in our lives, too. Opportunities when we can gather together and say, hey, by making a bunch of food and pouring a bunch of wine and inviting our friends and neighbors and enjoying each other's company becomes a way for us to lean into the promises of God. All of these celebrations are, of course, rooted in one particular command, I think, I'm not the only one who thinks it. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. I want to read just a brief passage to you here. Exodus chapter 20. Now, just to set this stage, of course, we have the people of God having left Egypt, being liberated from slavery in Egypt, or wandering around in the desert. God gives to them certain commands, gives to them certain practices. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 says this. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or even the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it to you. I want to suggest this idea that all of these celebrations, all of these practices that involve throwing big parties, all of them are rooted essentially in the command to take a Sabbath day and rest. All of them are commanded in this incredibly rich and gracious idea that life is not just about work. but you work a lot. If you're anything like me, you get to a certain place in your life and you have a hard time not working. Now, Janelle and I are empty nesters this year. Most of you know that. We have three daughters. Youngest one just went off to school this year. She's almost done, three quarters of the way done with her first year of school. I have three daughters at university right now. I know. But an interesting thing has happened. Janelle and I just always work now. Now, it doesn't help that we work together, right? But every time we're together, it's become like a joke. Like, can we talk about anything but the church? Can we spend time together and not begin to, like, plan and scheme and touch base about the details of work? It's really, really hard, y'all. Because for us, of course, we're really fortunate that the work that we do is meaningful to us. And I'm sure that for you, I hope for all of you, the work that you do is meaningful to you. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying work is bad. But there's only so much work that we can do. There's only so much effort that the human body can pour out day after day, minute after minute, week after week, month after month. At some point, you need to... Rest. Even worse, if you feel like work is not meaningful to you. And I know what that's like, too. I know what it's like to get up every single day and go to a job that you despise. I know what it's like to feel like you have to play some sort of a political game that makes you want to, like, you know, scream at the top of your lungs if you have the opportunity to shut your office door after you've just attended like the most inane meeting ever. Like I know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night grinding your teeth because your body carries stress from the insanity that you face every single day. I know what that's like. Our body needs rest from that too. In fact, that second example, I think, gets a little closer to the heart of what the Sabbath is all about in Exodus chapter 20. Machmonides was a a 12th century Spanish rabbi, and he said that the Sabbath was given to us for two reasons. He said the first reason, reason was to remind ourselves all the time that we inhabit a world that is created, that there is a God who is good, who created good things, and that we are made for that goodness. That's the first reason. I'm totally paraphrasing. It's okay, he's dead, he won't know, right? <laughs> the second thing that Maimonides said the Sabbath was made for 
was to teach ancient Hebrew slaves what freedom looked like. The Sabbath was given in Exodus chapter 20 to a bunch of ancient Hebrew slaves whose work every day was not their own, whose work every day was not rooted in their souls and the enjoyment of their gifts, the goodness of being productive in life, whose work every day was not their own. It was directed by a master who told them what they had to do and didn't care what they thought, whose work every day, whose blood and sweat and toil and tears was nothing but an exploitative injustice visited upon them and their children and their grandchildren. And the exodus is about freeing them from that kind of work. And so God gave them the Sabbath to enter into the realization that life is not about work. It's also about rest. That life is not about being mastered or governed or enslaved or exploited. That God and goodness and love or about liberation. And I think that's what's happening in all of these passages about celebration. God is saying, I am about your freedom. I am about your goodness. Isn't that what we mean essentially at the end of the day when we talk about God? Don't we mean the sum total of all that is good and right and lovely and beautiful and true? We don't know what to call that or what that looks like, so we call it God and we chase after it. And when we celebrate, when we take time away from our rest, away from our troubles, away from our deficiencies, and we intentionally celebrate, we are saying all of that is true, whether we can see it or not. I told you about the worst party of my life. Let me tell you about one of the best. One of the best parties of my life was two years ago when one of my best friends, a neighbor of mine named Matt, had his 50th birthday. 50th birthdays apparently are a big deal. Mine might be coming up in December. That has nothing to do with anything else. But it was Matt's 50th birthday two years ago, and they planned a birthday party in Valle de Guadalupe, which is a valley just inland of of, uh, uh, Ensenada. I almost said Escondido. (laughs) Valle de Guadalupe is wine country in Baja, California. If you go down there, it's an amazing place. It really is, because there are all of these wineries that you know, inhabit that valley, and there are all these really amazing restaurants and amazing little places. Like You can go and stay, kind of like bed and breakfasts. And, and uh, Matt's family planned for him to have his 50th birthday in Valle de Guadalupe because that's a place that he loves. And so we went down there. We were fortunate enough to be invited. Janelle and I went down. We spent the weekend in Valle de Guadalupe with Matt and his family and a bunch of his friends, friends that he had known his entire life. Matt's one of these guys who is really close to the people he knew in junior high, which is so rare. And Janelle and I got to be a part of that somehow, even though we've only known them for a couple years. And so we're down there at this restaurant in the middle of the night, in Baja, California, 
around these amazing tables with amazing food and people enjoying wine together and laughing and affirming each other and enjoying each other's company, saying good things and, and affirming Matt as a human being. Talking about the ways that Matt had been impactful in their lives. And telling him what an important person he was to them. And I thought, this is the most Christian party I've ever been to. There were no prayers. There was no liturgy. Nobody read scripture. I don't know that anybody at the party actually believes in God. And they think Janelle and I are a little weird. They invite us anyway. Maybe to like poke at us with a stick or something, try to understand like <laughs> why we go to church, you know. But as all these people were loving on Matt and affirming Matt and enjoying each other's company and connecting genuinely, I thought, this is the most Christian party I've ever been to. Because anywhere that people are gathered and are loving each other, God is there. Whether we know it or not, I consider myself lucky that I was able to recognize it and affirm it. Now, to be Christian, I think, means that we do that intentionally. It doesn't happen by accident. And so even when we gather here on Sunday mornings, that's essentially what we're doing. We do have something that looks a little bit like a liturgy, and we do read from Scripture, and we do pray prayers. And, you know, you asked me to get up here and do this sort of thing, which is also weird. But, but we do this intentionally in order to learn to recognize how God is at work in all those other places in our lives. That's what good celebration is. Last point that I want to make. When we do that, when we celebrate in that way, when we gather together, we affirm each other, we love each other, we enjoy each other's presence, we rest from work, whether it's meaningful or exploitative, whatever it might be, when we take that time to do that, somehow, mysteriously, I can't explain how, God empowers that to be a foretaste of what's to come. And that's why John writes this in Revelation 19. Because when we celebrate in that way, we are embodying the good thing that God promises in the future. Every Christian party, if it's really a Christian party, is a prophetic act. It's a demonstration of the good things that are coming. We believe it. We celebrate it. We lean into it. Even if the day before, we weren't so sure. And especially if the day after, we're convinced it's not true anymore. In that moment, we do it. We believe it. We trust it. That's a great party. We should have more parties like that. That was a little loud. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again for this day, the opportunity to gather on a beautiful morning. We don't take for granted that 
There are so many things that we could be doing on this day, but we choose intentionally to carve out this time to celebrate your presence, to affirm each other, to lean into the promises of your goodness to come. And we ask that as we do this, that we would learn to recognize your presence in our lives and in the lives of our friends, our family, and our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates. We ask that you'd give us eyes to see how you are present in all things and how you are at work with all people. We pray that you would teach us how to walk in the way of love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you just stand and worship with me one last time today?